actually. The only resemblance to Mariah Carey would be Mariah Carey's CD left out in the sun for a year <laughs> and then trying to play it. Actually, <laughs> I'm sorry. That was actually good. But it's true. That's oh, what it sounded like. Yeah. It was really not good. Hey, Hi. Christopher. Are you in pain? Why are you staring at me when you sing? No, <laughs> you can't think that that sounded good, did you? Um, I believe it sounded good. No, you, no, it doesn't. The reality is there's not a single person on planet Earth who would ever pay to hear you sing. I have a beautiful voice. No, you, no, really you do, do not have a beautiful voice, I do Aretha. have a beautiful Aretha, voice. Aretha, my you voice that is amazing. It to is who? amazing. <laughs> to my family, to people that don't even know me. I stop crowds. Yes, I bet. I do. I stop crowds. People listen to me because they're just like, wow. You mean the crowd disappears when you sing? And you know what? They come a little closer. Holding anything? <laughs> oh, Simon. <laughs> All right, round of applause for either the contestants or Simon Cowell, depending on what you think. <laughs> my, my favorite uh, Simon Cowell line is, I don't mean to be rude, but... And then, then he says pretty much the rudest thing you can imagine. It's something like, I think you are the worst singer in New York City. It's something like But I don't mean to be rude. Um, so as most of you know, American Idol is... a hit television show that started in 2002, where people perform in front of judges in hopes of being discovered, right? Becoming immediately famous and then eventually rich. Many participants have gone on to make a career for themselves, acts like Chris Daughtry, uh, Jennifer Hudson, Kelly Clarkson, and uh, you know Ron Wood's personal favorite, Carrie Underwood. Jesus, take the wheel. Thank you. <laughs> Yes, please take the wheel. Uh, though many more people have found themselves simply being harshly ridiculed by the judges, mostly by the articulately sinister Simon Cowell, in finding their hopes of fame being abysmally smashed in front of all America. There's nothing like being humiliated on television. If you're a kind and sensitive soul like Christy Simpson, really breaks her heart to see those comments. But if you're a really mean, dark-hearted person like Mel Shaw, <laughs> then no, <laughs> no, more like me, um, then you, you kind of enjoy some of the smashing, uh, particularly when they come in and they've really got an attitude about how good they are and they're not. You kind of feel like they need to be, you know, put in line a little bit. <laughs> but the truth is, this morning what we're talking about is that all idols... Uh, we all have idols that kind of need some smashing, right? Not all of them uh, have interesting hair and terrible vocal skills. Uh, according to Rabbi, I don't know how to pronounce this, so I'm going to pronounce it the way that I enjoy pronouncing it. According to Rabbi Haya, a first century Jewish sage, uh, he told us the following story, which is meant to have occurred somewhere between the lines of the biblical book of Genesis. The good rabbi tells it like this. Abraham's father, Terah, was an idol manufacturer. And one day, Abraham's uh, father went away and left his son in charge of the store. And a man walked in, wished to, wishing to buy an idol. Abraham asked him how old he was, and the man responded, 50 years old. Abraham then said, you're 50 years old and would worship a day-old statue? It's kind of the Simon Cowell kind of thing going on there. At this point, the man left ashamed. 
Later, a woman walked into the store and wanted to make an offering to the idol. So Abraham took a stick, smashed the idols, and placed the stick in the hand of the largest idol. And so when his dad returned, he asked Abraham what happened to all the idols. Abraham told him that a woman came in to make an offering to the idols. The idols uh, argued about who was going to eat the offering first. Largest idol took the stick and smashed all the other idols. (laughs) Tara responded by saying that, Uh, They're only statues. They don't have any knowledge. Whereupon Abraham responded saying, you deny their knowledge and yet you worship them. So this is like, this is major burn mic drop moment right there. So while that story may not be in our Bibles, there's plenty of scripture that demonstrates how idols were always a big issue for the Israelites and how God had a pretty big problem with it. And right there at the beginning of the Decalogue, Looking at Andrew Kramer, he really likes unnecessarily long words almost as much as I do. So anytime that transubstantiation, I think, is one of his favorites, anytime that's mentioned, uh, I don't know, the enunciation, any of these sort of big churchy words, he really, banana, all of these. Anytime you venture into the multisyllabic, Andrew Kramer gets excited. So the Decalogue, also known as the Ten Commandments, (laughs) begins like this, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. So pretty big deal, don't have other gods. And right after Moses receives the Ten Commandments, uh, what happens? The the people are completely obedient, right? Just they do it, they do it all right. Uh, He says you shall not make for yourself an idol, because if that was not enough, he has to say a few more things about it. In any form of heaven or above the earth, uh, beneath the waters below, you should not bow down to the worship them. And like I said, they're completely obedient for about five minutes. The moment they're left alone, while Moses goes up to receive the commandments, the first thing the people do is build an idol, right? As soon as they get a chance. Here's Moses' response. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, this is their golden calf they've created, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made, burned it in a fire. Then he ground it into powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. Yeah. <laughs> we'll actually be, re- this, is, this is actually the fourth eating contest that we will be doing <laughs> at the all-church <laughs> picnic. So make sure you're there. Because uh, I'm going to take Joseph down on the gold powder drinking contest. But to us sort of modern, sophisticated folk in Conroe, Texas, the word idolatry probably conjures up pictures of primitive people bowing down before statues, right? The biblical book of Acts uh, talks more about idols as Paul is in, uh, you know, in Athens. While Paul was there waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols, right? Statues and um, temples everywhere, all these different gods. The Parthenon of Athena overshadowed everything, but there were other deities represented in every public space, right? There's just gods everywhere. Gods of beauty, gods of war, gods of fertility and wealth. Uh, But thank you, God, for not making us like those pitiable, ignorant Grecian savages, because idolatry doesn't exist anywhere in my culture or in my life. Well, Or maybe it does. Uh, If we look at history and then look at our own culture, we might see more similarities than than we would like. We have kind of a bridge to our modern times that comes to us from Alexis de Tocqueville. 
in his famous observations on America, this is from the 1830s, what he said he saw in America was a strange melancholy, a strange melancholy that haunts the inhabitants in the midst of abundance. So this weird kind of sadness that right in the middle of uh, wealth and prosperity that he saw, he said that Americans believed that prosperity could quench their yearning for happiness, but such a hope was a false hope because de Tocqueville added, the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. So there's this sense in which you think, I'll be happy if I can just get this, and the problem is, is once you get that, then that's, that's really sad. <laughs> Because now you've got nothing to hope for. This is out of uh, Timothy Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, what I'm going to read to you, and largely what we'll be basing our series, our new sermon series on. He says, what do we have as idols today? It is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel like living, worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family and children, or career and making money, or achievement and critical acclaim, or saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in the Christian ministry. Even if delivering just the perfect sermon intro, even that can become an idol. So the truth is, is anything in your life can become an idol, anything that you put in that place of God. And so an idol in this way is just a counterfeit God. For most of us, it's not even necessarily bad things, right? More often than not, they're the good things that tend to become idols. It's something that's good that we treat like God. So our American idols are people, positions, possessions, or pleasures that we pursue in place of God. Just needed to get some peas in there. Yeah. But by the time I get done with all those peas, several of you are needing a bathroom break. I don't know. I can't blame that joke on anybody but myself. But I will. I'm going to blame it on Phil Wright because he's the one that laughed. <laughs> but it's that sense that I want to go back to that line, which we said, anything that you'll spend all your resources on without a second thought. And again, he even mentions our, you know, our children, our families, you know, sometimes we'll put our career above everything else. And without a second thought, give all that we are or all that we have to those things, right? And so in that way, it has taken the place of God in our lives, Don Williams in his book, 12 Steps with Jesus, says, if we do not worship the living God, we will worship someone or something else. We're going to worship something. It's just deep in our souls. It's the way that we were created. We have an urge to worship. Uh, you know, as Bob Dylan said, you know, you got to serve somebody. 
we're going to do it because it's, it's just what we're wired for. We're wired for worship, and we're going to find something to attach that to. The problem is if that worship is attached to anything other than God, it goes really bad. Sometimes quickly, sometimes it takes a little while. The destruction sometimes is a slow burn, but it's, it's going to happen. And so in that sense, we're, we're not any different than our ancient ancestors, right? We continue to manufacture idols in the idol factory of the heart. So what do we do with that? Well, Paul says it like this, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, right? These are a list of just some of the things that we idolize, right? In addition to the other things that we already mentioned, and what we have to do is put those things to death, right? Put to death the evil desires that are within us. And so in that sense, Paul is in agreement with not only Abraham, but obviously Simon Cowell. And so this morning, Simon says that all idols must be smashed, right? These things in our life that continue to compete for our affections with the place of God, for that place of primacy in our life, we've got to figure out a way to um, smash that part of us that is idolizing those things. You don't necessarily, you know, earlier I said our children were, could become our idols. I'm not necessarily advocating the smashing of your children. I'll leave that between you and God. Uh, but, but the part of our hearts that idolizes those things those evil desires that, again, make, transform the good things into trying to be ultimate things. That's the part of, our, part of our heart and part of ourselves that we need to put to death here that needs to be smashed. So this morning, to tell you more about idols, I'd like to welcome to the stage my good friend, our senior pastor, Raymond McDonald. And thank you for being the consummate introductionist. A new word we've created for you. Joe Looney. Absolutely a great time to talk about idols. Uh, Absolutely, uh, you're going to see all kinds of clips through this series. I'm sure you'll see some Billy Idol, some Gallagher, some other things like that. There should be a lot of things to have fun with on this. Any Gallagher fans here, raise your hand. Old. Uh, we're old. I'm just saying, say say Gallagher to someone who's like under 30, and they're like, what? He smashes watermelons, and people laugh? Yeah. You're right. Don't smash them at my home. I don't, I get, I get yeah, I get very, you what? Splash those. You're in the splash zone. Thank you very much for using small syllables. I appreciate that. <laughs> it's splashable. All right. Um, anyhow, people manufacture idols in their hearts three ways. We're going to look at three ways. You could go many things with this here. And if you read Don Williams' 12 Steps with Jesus, which is a recovery book, he'll use five different ways. They're there, but we're going to use these three that Timothy Keller uses in his book, Counterfeit Gods, and uh, a book that we will have out here for you as well, or you can get it on Kindle. Anyhow, the first one is uh, you're going to be loving these idols. The Bible speaks of idols using this marital uh, metaphor that is here. God should be our true spouse, but when we desire and delight in other things more than God, 
we commit spiritual adultery. We fall in love with something more than we do with God. And any of us who's ever dated, realize who was a Christian dating, how you've dealt with that, how you've dealt with even the love of, of your wife and your children. Maybe it was the desire for something in your life that took over uh, in that way, and I, and I get those things that's there. This is what 1 John 2, 15 through 16 says in The Voice. Notice how we used another kind of show here. Uh, it says, don't fall in love with this corrupt world or worship the things it can offer. Those who love its corrupt ways don't have the Father's love living within them. All the things the world can offer to you, the allure of pleasure, the passion to have things, and the pompous sense of superiority, apparently there's some peas here as well, do not come from the Father. These are rotten fruits of the world. When we begin to go after these things, often we'll, they may be things God has put there for us. But we become like Abraham with Isaac, and we begin to need to put them on the altar to put them in their proper place so that God can use the things he's given us to bless us versus the things he's blessed us with taking us down a bad road that's there. So, you know, romance or success can become those false lovers that's there. And for anyone who's ever went after success in that way, you know that's very true. Promises to make you feel love. Uh, valued, uh, and in her book, Love Idols, Jennifer uh, Lee wrote this here, Dukes Lee wrote, we want someone to think we're sensational. I like that. I want to feel sensational. We desire to be recognized, to be valued, to be respected, to be loved, yet this natural yearning too often turns into an idol of one of God's most precious gifts, love itself. So love itself, something that we realize is got God in it, can be turned around and used as an idol. My need to be loved literally can become an addiction in my life. My need to be with people, to be uh, just exhilarated, can become an idol in itself. I, I tell the story of how uh, in San Antonio we had a national conference there. If you went with me to that conference, raise your hand there. You might, you might remember that time there in San Antonio. It was great. A lot of the vineyard people were there. It was a big conference. We, and, uh, but my wife, uh, her idea of vacations differ from mine. Mine is let's go on vacation, hang out with a bunch of people, eat restaurants, and she'll do that for a while. But her greatest vacation generally is let's just lay in bed and watch TV and kind of sleep through the whole thing. Um, we have eight kids at home. You can get an idea how that works. But on this certain vacation, she was actually sick, and I think one of the kids may have been sick. And I said, well, there's no need me staying cooped up in this old motel room. I'm going out looking for some fun. <laughs> I'm looking for some friends. And I left my poor wife there sick. I remember her asking me to bring her back a soda or something. And upon my departure walking down the San Antonio, uh, the river walk there in San Antonio, looking for someone I knew. The Lord spoke these words to me. He said, you are addicted to people. The need to be with people all the time, and you'll throw off someone you actually love just to be in this place of admiring and being admired. God is not against people, nor is he about extroverts like me not being around people because I am designed for people. But the point is 
because I am the consummate entertainer, and anywhere I go, I must entertain. Hope you are entertained today. But the point is, I had to realize something. I had taken something that actually was a benefit to who I was as a person, and it had taken over me. How many times had my wife said to me, are we not enough for you, me and the family, that you can't just come and be with us, that you can't just enjoy being at home, that you can't come home alone and enjoy being at home? I'm sharing very sensitive things in my life to say how something just so simple can become an idol. Well, it can get bigger than that. And Timothy Keller writes this here. He says that idols capture our imagination. Uh, we can locate them by looking at our daydreams, what we're imagining, what is our fondest dreams. He says we look to our idols to love us, to provide us with value and a sense of beauty, significance, and worth. Are you with me this morning? Does any of this speak to you? For me, music was a big deal in my life. I was a songwriter. And I left Texas, my beloved Texas, to go to California to pursue learning guitar and learning music. When I got there, just loving guitar, loving the blues, listening to music and learning to play, we began to play in the nightclubs. And the Los Angeles Times come out and wrote some really nice things about us. Uh, people began to show up to the shows. And we were kind of a big deal. We had leather-bound books. and the Well, you get the idea. Uh, the more that I was immersed into that culture, what I wanted to then be was famous. And when you want to be famous, then the music can take a secondary seat at times because what you need to be famous isn't always to be better. It's to be able to promote yourself better and to do things. Frank knows he was out in California as well, and we saw many people put their art and push it aside and go after the glory. And I remember at time what happened as we all began to pursue that line of thought. The band began to uh, splinter in ways. Who's going to write the songs? Who's going to do this? Who's going to get the credit? And those things got involved versus who is just going to enjoy the music. Some of you might remember the band of Traveling Wilburys that would come around in the 80s and 90s. Yes, old people, raise your hands. And you remember it was a great super group, but it really wasn't a super group because a lot of those guys, namely Bob Dylan, was kind of down. Uh, Tom Petty was even kind of down in that time. Roy Orbison, no one had heard of in a while, though he had just released an album. You had George Harrison of the Beatles, who had just released an album, and also Jeff Lynne from ELO, probably the least known today here. But with all that, these guys just wanted to come together and to play music because they'd always been in bands it had succeeded. And this was just a chance to sit in the garage and relax. They all sit down in the beginning of George Harrison, who had really laid his life down to kind of let the other guys shine, probably the best writer in that group at that time, especially, sit down with all of them in the circle and looked at Bob Dylan. And they said, Bob, I want you to know we all know you're Bob Dylan, but you're just going to be Bob to us in this band. Are you okay with that? And Bob Dylan looked back to them and said, I just want to be normal. And I'm going to, he says, I really look up to all of you as well. And I'm going to just treat you like people as well. And they, that was the way they started that whole band. And that's why it was so really good. And the songwriting so good. Because they put the need to be known and to be expressed as individuals into a group in that way. Well, that's what can happen with a really good thing when you begin to idolize it. It begins to tear apart 
at the seams. Because if God's given you something, he will not allow it to stand as an idol, even if it's something he loves for you to have. It's there. We make an idol out of being loved as well. And that's why the ancient cults always used, um, especially the moderns as well, sex is a, a form of idol worship that was there. They even went as far as hiring prostitutes to represent those temple cults. If you've read anything of ancient history, you'll know that. And so what they would do, they would use these prostitutes to lure you to come and to be involved sexually so that you had an intimate relationship with the actual idol. Okay? And so Paul would write about these things to the Corinthians, and he's talking to them going down there to these, to these idols and being involved in that way. He writes this in 1 Corinthians 6, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Again, he's trying to bring about this understanding of worship. He says, do not do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have received from God. You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. I read this scripture today not to give you a sex class, but to mainly say the idea of love something that we've been given that's good being used in idolatry becomes destructive. And Paul was calling them out of that that's there. We manufacture idols. Here's your fill in the bank, and I'll be quick with the other ones. When we love anything more than the creator of all things. When we love anything more than the creator of all things, you've just stepped into idolatry. Now, the problem with that is many of us don't even pursue our deep love of God. We don't even try to in any way um, beautify it by the small things of spending time or studying or contemplating on the Lord, whatever way you're using uh, to help bolster up. If you have a relationship today, married or not, you generally beautify it by spending time calling and doing things of that nature. If you don't, even if you are living with your spouse, your relationship will go into decay because it takes more than just knowing that you're married. You work on being married and you spend time with those things. You know, so one of the big ways to help us with the things that God's given us is to stay close to God. If you have a business and that means a lot to you, your best protection of it not becoming your idol is to spend time with God and to make sure you Always remember that he gave you that business. If it's music, if it's a love relationship, if it's candy, 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 whatever it is, keep close to God. And there's something about that that helps ward off this idol worship. So those are the things we look at here today. Let me look at the next one here. The Bible also speaks of idols using the religious metaphor. Let me back off real quick. For me, when I was in high school, I fell in love. I hope you didn't fall in love in high school. But if you did, God help you. So the thing is, I'd been in love since fifth grade. And when I began to date this girl, I knew that I was going to be married. But guess what didn't happen? We didn't get married. I said something stupid like, Lord, if she's not right for me, you can take her out of my life and I will serve you. Two weeks later, she dumped me. And two weeks later, I left God because I didn't know how to worship my God because all my Bible reading and everything had been done with this young girl in, in church, and her family had been my family of spiritual uh, importance. 
it took me years to be able to read the Bible again because it just, every time I read the Bible, it reminded me of her. After years, when I would come back and give my life to the Lord after 12 years and say, I'm done, I love you and I need your love. He took me right back to that and said, I was always your first love. It was never her. And I've pursued you and I love you and you have turned from me because you were hurt about that relationship. That was the first thing he dealt with was that idol of love and needing to be loved. And he captured my heart. And hopefully he will hold it forever, and I know he will. So the second thing we look at is God should be our true Savior. Uh, when we look to for personal achievement or financial prosperity to give us peace and security that we need. Idols give us this sense of being in control, and they can locate them uh, we can locate those idols by the things that keep us up at night, the nightmares we have. You ever have those nightmares? It's all going to go. You're going to lose it. It's gonna, you're gonna, my nightmares used to be coming up here and walking in front, <clears throat> and there was nobody here. The biggest fear in my life is you won't show up. Is that pretty sad? That the people that I love the most bring the most fear to my life. These become the same when we're in relationships that we are so afraid of maybe losing a spouse because of the issue of financial security that may be there or things of that nature. So today, as we look at these things, remember the things that we trust in, the things we trust in can control us in that way, too. What do we fear the most? What if we, we lost it? What would make life not worth living? What might drive you to the noose? What might drive you to think of taking your own life? We make sacrifices to appease and please the gods that will protect us. We'll do anything to make sure we're going to be safe and have a bountiful crop. Come in, if you will. Follow me in that metaphor. This is what Keller writes. He says, we look to our idols to provide us with a sense of confidence and safety. The psalmist reminds us where we should be placed. Our trust should he says, now this I know, the Lord gives victory to the anointed. He answers him from the heavenly sanctuary with victorious power of his right hand. And here you go. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. The psalmist was saying this here. What do you think trusts and protects our country, our family, our church? Is it not God? Do the other things matter? They do. But when we put our trust in those things, that's when we get in trouble, it's there. The prophet Isaiah, he would go on and say this here, talking about the futility of men. He says, on the day, on that day, meaning the day of the Lord, men and women will take the sticks and stones they've decked out in gold and silver to look like gods and then worship, and they will dump them in the ditch or gully, and they'll run for rock caves and cliff hideouts to hide from the terror of God, from his dazzling presence, when he assumes his full stature on earth towering and terrifying, quit scraping and fawning over mere humans so full of themselves, so full of hot air. Can you see there's nothing to them? And when we look for people, our bosses, the people that have the power to promote us or control us as our sense of safety, we've made an idol out of them as well. They only have breath within them. God has the power to bless you. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and let him exalt you at your good and due and proper time. 
This is what we do, is allow God to know this here. How many times have you thought, hey, I thought I was going to achieve these things in my life, and you're pressing and pushing and pushing. And God says, it's my job. I will promote you. Do your work. Do what you do. But don't sacrifice your family. Don't sacrifice your, your relationships, your friendships. Don't undercut somebody else. Don't do things that the idol is calling you to do that destroy your life. Don't throw away your personal character. Allow God to do what he's going to do. He said he'll do it and he will do it. And though we think we live in this secular world where no one does idol worship, these glittering gods of our age hold this title to the functional trust of our hearts. And when we see our global economy collapsing and going in shambles, many of these idols that we've worshipped for years have come crashing down. Maybe it was your 401K. Maybe it was your business. Well, what Timothy Keller would say is when these things go south, this is the ultimate, penultimate opportunity to experience the disenchantment with these idols. Meaning when things fall, have you ever lost everything and said, you know what, what was I thinking of? What was I thinking that this was the answer to my life? Sometimes when you lose a job, another one opens up and it's one that you actually get to hang out with your family. You may make a little less money, but it may open up your life for the riches of glory that God has for you that are more. What I'm saying is sometimes bad things that you think are bad is just God's way of smashing idols in your life and giving you a fresh and new look of what's there. This is the way we come out of despair when we discern the idols of our hearts and our culture. We manufacture idols when our confidence and security are found outside of God. When we begin to think it's somewhere else, we've manufactured an idol that's there. The only way to free ourselves from this destructive influence of counterfeit gods is to turn back to the true God that we have, the living God who revealed himself at Mount Sinai, the living God who revealed himself there on the cross is the only Lord if you find him and truly find him, can fulfill that heart that's there and give you a sense of confidence and peace even when it's not going well for you. Jeremiah tells us this. He says, Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water and sends out its roots into the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. It leaves, its leaves are always green. It has no worries in the year of drought, and it never fails to bear burden. Guys, every time I see someone manipulating another person or a system or government agency or a city, what I generally find is that these idols will come to bear, and they will find themselves in a bad place. Do not use manipulation to get yourself what you think you need. Allow God to give you what you need, even as you pursue him is there. Well, the last one, God should be our only Lord and Master. But whatever we love and trust, we also serve. And anything that becomes more important and non-negotiable to us than God becomes an enslaving idol. In this paradigm, we can locate idols by looking at the things that 
bring about these unyielding emotions in our lives, what makes us controllably, uncontrollably angry, anxious, and despondent, and racks us with guilt that we cannot shake. These are the things that are idols. And when I read these things, I was like, I'm seeing idols in my life I didn't know I had. The things that have me there, that bring about anxiety so much, I wonder what's going on. Idols control us since we feel we must have them. Our life is meaningless. They control us because if I have to have that for life to be meaningful, then I have an idol. What is the thing if I lost, again, I just keep saying that I would just give up on life? What if I lost what I just wanted just quit? And sometimes these things are things that are just what God has given us for love. Loved ones. Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to get the praise from. We do not control ourselves. We're controlled by the Lord of our lives. And today I ask that he would just come and begin to control you. And what many people call psychological problems are generally simple issues of idolatry, perfectionism, workaholism, chronic indecisiveness. We need to control the lives of others and all these stem from making good things into idols that drive us into the ground if we try, if we just keep trying to appease them. Idols dominate our lives. And so this morning, we want to call upon the Lord to come and begin to smash them. This is what Galatians 4 says, verse 8. Earlier before you knew God personally, you were enslaved to the so-called gods that had nothing of this divine about them, nothing of the divine about them. But now that you know the real God, or rather since God knows you, how can you possibly subject yourselves again to those paper tigers? Again, this is the message, forgive me. For that is exactly what you do when you are intimidated into scrupulously observing all the traditions, taboos, superstitions associated with special days and seasons and years. I'm afraid that all my hard work among you has gone up in a puff of smoke. Obviously, Paul was speaking to them because they were submitting to religious leaders who were calling them to do religious things that had nothing to do with God because they wanted to get acceptance. You see, the manufacture idols, we manufacture them when our thoughts, desires, and actions are controlled by someone or something other than God. And many times this can be your pastor. Hopefully it's not me. Hopefully it is not anybody. Hopefully it's not your parents, your dad, your mom. Hopefully we understand we honor them, but they do not leave us in fear, and we're controlled by that. We see God is only needing the sacrifice, you see, but what he's asking for is obedience. He's asking for obedience. And then I think about this here. I remember when I first came back to the Lord and began to serve him, and I began to tithe, and I thought, you know, that's a lot of money, 10%. They really want me to do that. And the Lord spoke to me and said, well, the bartender, <laughs> he asked for a whole lot more than that, and you freely gave it to him. I had lived in the bars. And the thing about, God never asked for me what the bartender asked for me. The bartender asked for a whole lot more than 10%, and I gently tipped it on top of that and thanked him for taking all my money. And then I got up at 5 in the morning and went to work with a hangover. And I never even second-guessed it. 
God never has asked this kind of destructive behavior out of my life. And as I obey him, he glorifies my life with his life. As I come and obey him and walk with him, he never takes whatever I give to him. Obedience is paid back with love, respect and dignity, prosperity and peace. This kind of obedience unto God supersedes any obedience you're giving to the world today. Please understand that if you want to meet a man, you might meet him on the road he walks on. Walk with Jesus. Obey him. Walk in the way he's called you to walk. Don't second guess that. Know that these things are real and that there is a true presence to be experienced. Not what the idols ask for. The idols ask for a whole lot more. And you get nothing out of them. Samuel said this here, he says, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. God does not ask you to suffer for him in such a way that you pay back for the things you've done. We suffer with him because we love the people he loves that often bring us into peril and to pain. Meaning, if you've ever loved a family member who is going through difficult times, you've understood the sufferings of Jesus Christ. If you've ever loved me, you've understood the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Meaning, he's not asking us, as the homeless man once told me, to sleep in the street to pay for his past sins. He told me, I sleep on the streets because I once was a drug dealer. And I hooked many young men on drugs and young women on drugs. And I took their lives by seeing them OD. And now I live on the street to pay for my sin. To which I replied to him, you, if you had killed my son, you could sleep on these streets for 20 years and not even get close to paying for that sin. I would never forgive because you slept on the street. But I forgive you because I have the power in Christ Jesus to do so. And I ask you to stand up and get on with your life and quit living in shame and guilt. This is not what God's asking for you to sacrifice. Stand up with him. Stand with him in the forgiveness and love he's given you. <clears throat> Give up on the idol of this perfectionism. Give up on this idol of thinking that you can live this life alone. He's calling you, and he's calling you today. Jonah, after he had jumped over the boat, and if you don't know the story of Jonah, go home and read the book of Jonah in your Bible. But he had left God, walked away from God, would not pursue where God had wanted him to go, stood, stood went to another boat to go on some vacation somewhere. But when the storms came and the men threw him off the boat at his own request, he wrote a poem later about what it went on. He said, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed, and I will make good, and I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish and then vomited Jonah onto the island, the dry ground. This morning, some of us are locked into the seaweed being wrapped around our heads as the trapped and entangled at the bottom of the sea. Your idols have taken you and commanded you and taken you into places that have caused you to find yourself in predicaments. 
But God has got you in that predicament, meaning he's with you in that predicament. Turn, repent, and call out to him. Renounce your love of the idols and call out upon the love that you have for God. He sent Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, to come and to call you and woo you into the loving arms of a father who says, I love you. I was and still am your first love. Nothing else, no body, no thing can have the power over you that I have and bless you the way I can bless you. This is the call of the Father and Son and Spirit today. Smash your idols and come and serve Jesus. Would you stand with me now? This morning, if some of you are locked in despair, you're locked in this place of anxiety, we call you and say, let us pray with you. If your body is in pain and racked with pain because you've been running double timing, trying to make up what you have lost, the Lord says, come. Come put your trust in me. Come let me come and wrap you in my arms and take you out of the seaweed of life. This morning, if you've come and your heart is broken, come and let him touch your heart and begin to give you hope again for that which has been lost. I invite the ministry team to come forward as I pray for you and bless you. I'm going to release you to go, and some of you will go over and get your food for the week that's there. If you need prayer and you're concerned about not having enough food, you let us know. We'll make sure that we get that food for you or you receive prayer. You just tell someone here. We say, come Holy Spirit today as we invite you down. Come give your life to Jesus Christ. Come give your life to the one who wants to be Lord and is Lord of your life. Come today, receive prayer for the brokenness of your body, mind, and soul and the relationships that God has even given you. We praise you this morning, Lord. Come Holy Spirit now. Bring healing. Bring healing in this place and let there be a breaking of chains, smashing of idols as we go through this time and this season together. Now I bless you in the name of the Father who loves you so much. Would you shine upon them, Lord? Would you let the, your countenance shine upon them? Let them sense your presence, your face, your joy in them. And I bless you in the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus, come near them. For the one who doesn't know you, leave the 99. Go to the one now. Feel it right now. Feel the presence of the sun coming and beckoning and wooing as the Spirit is calling you into life. And I bless you in the name of the Holy Spirit. It's marked you, marked you with his own, as his own, to come and to be part of Father, Son, and Spirit in this life, this kingdom life together. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.